Hello and welcome to episode 26 of Tech Swamp. We have our host and friendly membership team here today. Unfortunately, Brad is out sick and won't be joining us in this episode of Tech Swamp, so it's just me and Caitlin. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Caitlin, what's up? <laughs> you know, just membership chilling. <laughs> of course. Um, and of course, this is Alex. So today we're sitting down with Paula Breening to talk data privacy. Uh, Paula is a privacy fellow with ACT's nonprofit arm, Innovators Network Foundation, and is ready to talk GDPR, CCPA, and all the other privacy-related acronyms you can imagine. Uh, but first, we're going to hit tech history and run through some DC headlines. This tech history is a little different than usual. We're paying homage to computer scientist Larry Tesler, who passed away earlier this month. Tesla was responsible for developing the cut, copy, paste we all know, love, and maybe use a bit too often. In his lifetime, Tesla made countless contributions to modern computing through his positions at companies like Xerox, Apple, Amazon, and Yahoo. He also co-founded a company called StageCast Software, which developed apps that made it easier and more accessible for children to learn programming concepts. Without his contributions to science and society, the personal computer experience that we know today may not exist. So for that, we say thank you to Larry Tesler. And that's all for Tech History. That sound means it's time for What's Brewing in DC. Here are some of the top tech headlines. Since the last episode of Tech Swamp, the impeachment trial against President Trump ended with an acquittal in the Senate. Two days after that acquittal, President Trump fired two witnesses who testified about his conduct during the trial, as well as a close relative to one of the witnesses. Remember last month when we talked about the FCC's Rural Digital Opportunity Fund and said, next up, TV white spaces? Well, someone at the FCC has been listening to the pod because that's exactly what was up next. That's right. The FCC will consider a notice of proposed rulemaking that aims to close the digital divide in rural areas with the use of TV white spaces. This is a significant step towards resolving outstanding issues impeding TV white spaces technology, such as allowing connectivity to mobile platforms, narrow band applications such as sensor-driven smart agriculture, and acceptable power levels in less congested areas. The open session, where the measure is expected to pass, will take place this Friday, February 28th. Head to our show notes for more information, including where to watch it all go down. CNBC reported that the White House is planning another 5G summit for early April 2020. And while the dates have not officially been confirmed by the White House, Director of the United States National Economic Council Larry Kudlow told CNBC that there will be many U.S. companies invited to the summit. We're going to have a lot of them in the White House to have a discussion. I'm sure the president will join us in part, and that would include Samsung, and that would include a lot of our guys. The summit is aimed at preventing Chinese telecom giant Huawei from becoming dominant in the race to 5G. We'll be sure to keep you posted on the summit in future episodes of TechSwamp. Before we log off what's brewing, here's a 2020 primary update. Since the last pod, we have had several dropouts. Andrew Yang, former Rep John Delaney, and Governor Deval Patrick have dropped out, leaving nine candidates in the race. Senator Sanders, former VP Biden, and now former Mayor Bloomberg are leading the pack. There have been three debates since the last episode of Tech Swamp, and the next one will take place on March 15th in Phoenix, Arizona. And if you didn't already know, some states have held their primaries. Here are those results. In Iowa, Mayor Pete Buttigieg took the win, and for New Hampshire and Nevada, Senator Bernie Sanders came out on top. The next primary will be held in South Carolina on February 29th, and Super Tuesday will take place that following Tuesday. And that's all for What's Brewing. This month for our Policy Deep Dive, we're joined by Paula Breening to discuss data privacy, 
Paula is the founder and principal at Cosentino Strategies, where she helps small and medium-sized companies comply with GDPR and CCPA. She's also a privacy fellow with the ACT Adjacent Innovators Network Foundation. Hi, Paula. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Caitlin. Thank it's good to be here. Um, so, Paula, you have recently written an op-ed that was featured on thehill.com, which listeners can find in the show notes. Um, so in that piece, you discuss several nuances within data privacy regulations implemented and draft as well as the U.S. and abroad. And before we dive into anything else, can you just give listeners a high-level debrief on the various laws that you mentioned in your piece? I know that there's GDPR in the EU, CCPA in California, but I know that there are some more that you mentioned. So if you could just give like a high-level debrief on what those look like. Sure. Um, I think it's really important to recognize that the last year or two, we've really seen a lot of activity around privacy, privacy legislation, um, new inf new guidance coming out of the EU. Um, there's been just a, a great, really heightened awareness about um, new technologies, new data uses. I think artificial intelligence, um, online profiling, uh, machine learning, Internet of Things. This is all really brought into the fore the fact that you know we we really are operating in a new data ecosystem, and um, governments are looking at whether or not they have a privacy regime, and if they do, whether that regime is working. So what we saw, um, particularly in the last two years, is first of all, the General Data Protection Regulation was uh, came into effect in May of, eight, of uh, 2018. And you know, that's a far-reaching piece of legislation that was set up to sort of harmonize uh, data protection across the EU. Um, it, but it's far-reaching because any company that uh, collects data about EU residents um, needs to comply with this law. So companies around the world have been you know, having to figure out how the GDPR applies to them and what they need to do to comply. And So just because it's in the EU and a regulation in the EU does not mean U.S. companies don't have to comply. That's exactly right. If you're in Peoria, Illinois, and you're collecting data on EU residents, you need to be aware of the GDPR and you may need to comply. So, you know, it's really sort of, that's raised a lot of awareness with companies that hadn't necessarily been paying attention to data privacy. Suddenly, this was something they had to deal with. And yeah. they're really sort of, had, there's a, been a reckoning inside of a lot of companies because of that. Um, the GDPR is different. It has um, new requirements uh, that really have to do with, you know, more specific requirements for notice. Um, very exacting sort of consent requirements. But I think more than that, it really requires companies to put technical protocols into place to make sure that the policies that they've got inside their companies about data protection are actually being carried out in practice. So that was a really important development. We're still figuring out how that's going to be interpreted. We're getting more and more um, opinions out of uh, data protection regulators in Europe about what some of those provisions mean. So there's a lot of work still being done within companies um, of all sizes to comply with the GDPR. Right. At the same time, you know, there was the um, California uh, Consumer Privacy Act came into effect. Um, that gives uh, California residents new rights in their data. It uh, imposes new requirements on California businesses. And uh, companies, while they were having to deal with GDPR, were also aware the CCPA was out there and they were going to have to comply with those rules as well and sometimes those rules 
you know, were, would dovetail, but sometimes the, you know, the requirements are different and trying to figure out how to reconcile those w was a challenge. Yeah, and just for a quick frame mm -hmm. of reference, um, I know that there was quite a bit of difference in the amount of time that went into writing GDPR and that regulation mm -hmm. and the amount of time that went in to drafting CCPA. Mm -hmm. um, can you just talk about that briefly and, and what that timeline looked like? Well, you know, the, um, the GDPR um, was, is, was sort of the result of uh, European regulators look and lawmakers looking at the European directive, which had been in place since 1995. So there had been a lot of time invested in data protection in Europe over, you know, a couple of decades. Right. Um, and so when they went back and looked at the directive, they could say, okay, what do we think is working? What do we think isn't working? Does this directive really work in the kind of data environment that we're living in now? Mm -hmm and what needs to be changed, what can work better. And so you see in that effort, um, sort of an effort to uh, streamline data protection across the European market, um, and also to sort of update it so that, um, so that you, know, you had this more accountability-based approach to this, where mm -hmm. um, you know, there was a recognition that companies need to be able to use data robustly in order to innovate, but if you're going to allow them that latitude, they've got to take on more responsibility for how they, how they govern data within their companies. So this was a long process. Um, there were many people spent lots of time in Brussels, mm -hmm. talking to regulators, talking to lawmakers, um, sort of influencing the outcomes of that. I think the California law was much quicker. Mm -hmm. I think there was concern in California that maybe there wasn't the same kind of um, review that went on, and, and that law came into effect quickly. Mm -hmm. um, there was sort of a, a one-year look-back period where they, you were given time to comply, but you, know, you became responsible for compliance throughout the course of that year. And then, interestingly, within a year of it coming into full compliance, we're back looking at a sort of 2.0 version of this. <laughs> right. So I think it says a lot about you know how challenging it is to write this kind of legislation. And and correct me if I'm wrong, but Canada is a little more similar to the GDPR kind of approach, where it's a little more, it's taking a little longer. It's being they're being a little more thoughtful with how this change is being implemented. Well, Canada um, has had in place their a law that they call. PIPIDA, which is the um, Personal Information Protection and Electronic Docu Documents Act. And um, that's been in place for quite some time, and it's really been sort of a model for a pragmatic approach to data protection that also provides good protections for individuals. Mm -hmm. um, it really sort of sets out the rules of the road for companies doing business and, and what the responsibilities are in when they use data in the commercial sphere. It has some implications for federal use of data. Um, but I think that when uh, Prime Minister Trudeau came out um, late last year, right after Christmas, I believe, and um, made his announcement that he wanted a review of Canada's data protection law, it was an indication that even that sort of legislation that people, that many legislators have looked to as a model when designing their own regimes, um, you know, that it really needed to be reviewed to see if it's still serving the public in a time when, you know, we're seeing just rapid evolution of data uses and technologies and um, some unexpected uses of data. So mm -hmm. I think it, it says a lot about how in flux this field is and um, how, you know, there's a need to adapt to this rapid change. Yeah, and then just on top of those, there's 10 plus states 
that either have attempted or are currently attempting to pass pass their own privacy regulation. Um, that's a lot to keep up with mm -hmm. for any any size business, particularly small business. Um, so between all of these laws that we've been discussing or regulations mm -hmm. we've been discussing, um, there has to be some conflict when it comes to compliance. So what does that look like? Well, you know, I think that um, there, there's a couple things to keep in mind. You know, there are, as you said, this, there's a, a constant sort of drip of new um, legislation coming out at the state level. And that can be really challenging because those states can take different approaches. <clears throat> they may have different requirements, um, you know, as, a, as to different, you know, across different laws. Um, and they may be focused on different data activities. They, you know, one state may be really concerned about data brokers. Another may be really concerned about data breach. Another one may be concerned about artificial intelligence. And I so saw New Hampshire just came out with one that's very concerned about, um, from what I read, access to uh, data on behalf of the state. Yes. Yes, and, and so what you end up with then is, you know, we this term is often overused, but it makes a lot of sense. It's this patchwork of laws and companies are in a position where, you know, they could be required to um, comply with all of them. Now, at the same time, on Capitol Hill, there's been a lot of activity around federal legislation. Mm -hmm. um, we've seen proposals that have come from different lawmakers as well as from companies and trade associations. Um, and I think that businesses in particular are very interested in the federal preemption yes. provision that may be part of this because they're looking for a more streamlined approach. Um, you know, the companies that I deal with are, they want to do the right thing. They want right. to comply, and but they want something that's uh, more consistent than what is emerging right now. Right. So it'll be interesting to see whether we end up with something <laughs> on Capitol Hill or not. Uh, and, you know, what that If you were a betting with. woman... What yes. what would you say is the future of a federal privacy law? I, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. I won't admit how long. <laughs> um, but, you know, I've never seen the level of interest um, that I'm seeing now. Okay. And I um, have never seen this level of thoughtfulness. You know, okay. that I, I really get the sense that um, there's a drive coming, not just from advocates or experts or, you know, even the Hill companies now are pushing for this. And right. so um, having said that, you know, I think that, you know, Congress being in the place that it is right now, it's really hard to imagine movement on this, in part because it is so challenging to do. You know, writing this legislation is really, really hard. Um, you know, it's like writing about metaphysics, you know, it's mm -hmm. um, something you can reproduce and, you know, it never degrades, you can give it away and still keep it. And how do you write laws around that? Right, yeah, so. that's something extremely permanent that really we haven't had to think about. Yes. Um, so kind of back to the, the patchwork mm -hmm. complication. Mm -hmm. I know um, a lot of the members of ACT, the App Association, mm -hmm. are, are small businesses, you know, and mm -hmm. that's not just by definition of the SBA, which I believe is like 200 or 250, but, you know, a lot of our members are 10 people or less, 20 people or less on a team. Mm -hmm. um, as a small company, when you have to comply with 50 different state regulations on top of GDPR, on top of whatever Canada is going to be doing, that can be really daunting. It can feel really scary as a small business to deal with something like that. So I want to use this opportunity to kind of talk about the work that you do and, and how you are, are helping companies of all sizes comply. Sure. 
Um, as part of my consulting practice um, at Cosentino Strategies, I'm working with a uh, startup called Achieve Compliance. Mm -hmm. And you know what we've put together is an approach to this that is um, part software driven, part client counseling. Um, it provides a way to do the internal housekeeping about so you really understand your data, how you're using it, what you're collecting, who you're sharing it with. Um, and you do all that intake using a software platform and then you're given you know, the opportunity reports that will tell you what you need to do to remediate, what you need to mm -hmm. do to come into compliance. Um, you've got, you know, there's backup um, that we provide with uh, somebody at the other end of the phone, somebody will come in and help you so you're not out there on your own. Yeah. Because we understand this is complicated and small companies like, you know, the companies you deal with, they don't have huge budgets for a legal team. You know, right. they're not, you know, the big tech companies who've been doing privacy and engaged in this conversation for 15 years um, and have an army of people working on this. Yeah. So what we try to do is make it easy for small companies. I have to. I also have to do a shameless plug. We also have some resources available for GDPR and CCPA. Mm -hmm. um, they're interactive guidelines and I'll make sure to include those in the show notes for any listener who doesn't know. I want to talk about what companies can do when it comes to data privacy to be proactive. They're doing a lot to keep up with all of these different regulations. What can they do themselves so that they don't have to go through this headache? Right. So, you know, obviously, ultimately, the goal is compliance. Every company wants to, you know, wants to do the right thing. General counsels are sleep better at night if they feel as though their company's complying. So that's ultimately the goal. But right. when you're in, trying to work in an environment where everything's changing so quickly and the way forward really isn't clear, I think it's important to go back to some first principles to best practices that can really get your internal house in order, that can, that can implement solid, reliable practices that are going to get you good privacy outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of this we now call accountability. Mm -hmm. um, accountability is one of the eight fair information practice principles that date back to the 1970s and have been, you know, they've been sort of the mainstay of data protection. They form the basis for laws and regulation and international treaties. Um, and companies consistently have gone back to these fair information practice principles to guide the way they operate within their companies when it comes to responsible data collection and use and protection. Um, accountability is one of these, and for a long time we haven't looked at it that closely, but what you know now it's sort of seen as a way to approach data protection in this environment where things are changing quickly. Companies used to need to use data robustly in order to innovate. They need flexibility. They need to be able to act quickly and be agile. Um, and what accountability does is says you need to put good policies in place within your company, you mm -hmm. need processes and protocols that make sure those policies are carried out, you need to do risk assessment, you know, what's the risk of using data or collecting data in a certain way, what's the risk to the individual, and mitigate against that risk. And if you can't mitigate it, maybe you make the decision you can't use that data or you can't engage in that activity. Right. Um, but it really goes to setting up good governance inside your company so that then when the laws come, you're set up for this because, frankly, this approach is where all of these laws are moving toward. Right. Um, it's becoming more integral to pretty much any law you see out there, whether it's at the state level, it's definitely part of the GDPR. We see elements of it in the CCPA. You know, 
Canada has been um, a model of this for a long time. Mm -hmm. So if you put this in place to begin with, you're going to be well situated when it's time to figure out the details of the compliance when things become a little bit more steady. Right. Okay. So I have to ask, thinking about all those things, what does the perfect privacy policy look like? Well, I would say there really is no perfect privacy policy. Um, I, and, I, and the reason I say this is that privacy is not a static thing. Privacy is an equilibrium that you're trying to create within your company. Um, your data use is going to change, the data you collect is going to change, your vendors will change, your um, business engagements will change, and you need to be monitoring that, you need to stay on top of that, you need to make sure that as those changes happen, you're making sure that the data is being secured, it's being um, used responsibly, you've got good notices up so that um, people understand what data you're collecting and how you're using it. But there really is no endpoint to this. This is an ongoing process within a company. In the same way that, you know, I think within a bank, there's money moving throughout a bank or there's money moving throughout a company, you're monitoring that all the time. There is no endpoint to that. You're always looking to make sure you know where it's coming from, you know how you're spending it, you know who can access it, who can sign off on purchases. It's the same within a company when it has to do with, you know, has to do with data, personal data, and how you protect it. Um, you've got to be on top of this all the time. So there really is no perfect privacy policy. That policy, as best as possible, has to reflect what's going on with your within your company. And you need to keep going back and revisiting it to make sure that it does stay current. Yeah, I think that that's a major key is, is revisiting that. Because as, mm -hmm. as these laws continue to evolve and change, and CCPA, CCPA 2.0, federal, federal framework, whatever, mm -hmm. this is going to look like things will be changing no matter what. So I think that, that that's a great mm -hmm. piece of advice. You think you have something good now? Keep revisiting it. Um, is there anything you want to leave our listeners with um, when it comes to data privacy, whether it's our Hill audience, our small business audience? What is like one thing you'd like to leave listeners with? Well, I think at the end of the day, what you really are trying to do when it comes to data protection and privacy is this is really about trust. Mm -hmm. You know, we there's tremendous benefits that we're getting from new devices, from new data applications, um, and, and you know we still don't completely understand all the potential here. Mm -hmm. But if individuals don't trust that data about them is being used for their benefit and it's being used responsibly, they're really going to be sort of hesitant to engage in the way that we need them to, so that we can generate the data to power all of this innovation. So, you know, it really uh, works to the company's benefit to do the, do the hard work um, mm -hmm. of data protection in their company. Not only that, you know, it's just good housekeeping. Yeah. You understand what you've got. Um, you know who's using it. Uh, you know what's coming into the company. You, um, you know who your vendors are and are they handling data responsibly? Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, there are implications when you outsource data to a third party. You're still responsible for that data. So. Understanding your data ecosystem can only benefit your company. It gives you, um, a, you know, firmer ground to stand on and more potential. You can really mine the potential of your data if you're, if you understand it and you're using it responsibly. That's awesome. Well, Paula, that is all for our deep dive. Thank you so much for joining us on Tech Swamp. I hope that we can have you back soon. Thank you so much for having me.
Uh, and now it's time for our random identifier. Caitlin, tell me what's <laughs> on your mind. Well, um, so I had an, a different random identifier. Yeah. And I actually talked about it already. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, Just like as a primer, what we talked about is basically TikTok as a, as a learning platform. About crystals. About crystals. You can learn how, how crystals are mined. Yes. Um, but, <laughs> but instead, uh, Alex and I sat down. Uh, we're in the pod, recording the pod, uh, having a great, great conversation about our random identifiers. Yeah. And then we wrap up the podcast. And I realized that the microphone had been muted the entire time we were recording Tech Swamp. Yeah. So we had to re-record. Basically, I feel like a freaking clown. I feel so <laughs> dumb. I'm so embarrassed. Oh my gosh. I but don't think it's necessary it's okay. to feel that way at all. <laughs> and also like, so what many of you may or may not know is that like when you podcast, like it's really funny because, you know, sometimes it's, it feels very conversational. Like when we do interviews with like members who come on or with, you know, folks from the act team who come on, <laughs> it is very conversational. We don't really have like anything that we're reading from, but obviously with things like, you know, the, the DC headlines, we want to make sure that we're like conveying the best the accurately best reporting. And so we do read. And so probably as people walk by, because the pod is made of glass, um, they probably just saw us saying the same thing three times because we also did a practice round. Um, and that's my favorite thought. It's just that like people have walked by and heard us talk about the same things. This is so wrong. I can't believe this. Whatever. No, it's all I've made here. worse mistakes, but like we've all made worse mistakes. What a doozy. I mean looking I up and seeing that light <laughs> blinking that the mic was muted, like my stomach fell. I get it. Feet, floors. It I feel like what adds to it also for me, um, is that my random identifier was about coffee and about this really great <laughs> coffee subscription service that I got. But you I should still this. talk about it. I mean, I am still talking about it, okay. which is that I really, really love it. It's from a bunch of different... You get coffee every month from a different place. Um, but the funny thing is just that, like, we're also just, like, sitting here drinking coffee. We're, like, recording the pod. We're just, like, doing our thing, having our morning, and it just, like, makes me laugh so much. Um, but anyway, yeah. Um, <laughs> I believe it's called... I can't remember if it's, like, Atlas coffee it's like something like that yeah. you get coffee every month from a new country mm -hmm. and it's really delicious it's in a beautiful bag and you get that like sounds interesting where did you get your first coffee from uh <laughs> my first one <laughs> i think was from nicaragua oh. um and they give you like a little card that tells you like where it was grown and like mm -hmm. a little bit about the farm and then you get like a, like a postcard kind of that's like something beautiful from the place like a picture of something beautiful from the country and then like information about the country um and i really liked your idea of getting like one of those like silly maps but then oh, you can yeah. like you can like map where all of your coffee comes from because yeah. like I'm probably going to extend this because A it's a perfect amount of coffee to like get you through like a month mm -hmm. but B it's cool that you're getting coffee that's a lot of coffee I mean for you I feel like that is a like they have to give you a lot in each order for you to have enough coffee yeah it's month. pretty good I mean I, I do like I keep it for the weekends okay usually okay because okay. um, like during the week sometimes I'll make a pot at home but usually well, it just depends. Yeah. But sometimes I just drink a lot of coffee here at the office. So, yeah. like, it's, like, my, like, good yeah. coffee, you know? It's a treat-yourself like, coffee. Yeah. Um, okay. So it's about the right amount. So, yeah. It's it's great. Sounds Would great. Would recommend, everyone. Sounds great. It's the first time I'm hearing about it. It sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys. That's it for Tech Swamp. If you heard anything on here that piqued your interest, head over to our website and make your way to the podcast section. We'll have notes on today's episode that include links to all the good stuff. 
And we want to give a shout out to Brad Goodall, who composed the podcast Awesome Music. Thank you, Brad. And don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. And of course, we would love a rate and review. Five stars, please. And that's all for today, folks.